Hi, this is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. Though the problem receives less attention than it used to, Islamophobia remains a problem in the United States today, especially among Christians, whether it's bullying in schools, political scapegoating, or violence and vandalism at houses of worship. Today, we speak with Jordan Denari Duffner, a doctoral student in theology and religious studies at Georgetown University. She's the author of the new book, Islamophobia, What Christians Should Know and Do About Anti-Muslim Discrimination, available from Orbis Press. Her conversation with Commonweal contributing writer, Paul Moses, follows in a moment, here on the Commonweal Podcast. So I'm here with Paul Moses. Paul, thanks for being here today. It's good to be with you, Dominic. So maybe we could hear a little bit about what you and Jordan discuss on the upcoming episode. Jordan, I first became interested in her work a few years ago when she did a study uh, at Georgetown University on ways that a very harsh anti-Muslim message that really was not consistent with Catholic teaching on how to uh, relate to Islam was getting a lot of play in segments of Catholic media. And I thought her report was really well done. And so she came out with this new book on Islamophobia. And it manages to be both accessible and and very well researched. She looks at how it kind of permeates into so many aspects of life. And not just a condemnation of very harsh far-right views, but how it permeates into the mainstream and even among people who consider themselves liberal and and, and open-minded. So it's it's a very challenging book, and it seemed like a good opportunity to actually meet Jordan, whose work I've been following. Okay, that sounds good. Why don't we take a listen to your talk? Thank you, Paul. Jordan, it's first of all so nice to meet you. I've been aware of your work for quite a long time, and it's really nice to get to sit down and talk about it with you. And I thought for a starting point, point to ask about your, your new book, Islamophobia, What Christians Should Know and Do About Anti-Muslim Discrimination. It's obviously, even from the title, directed at getting me, the reader, to, to do something. What do you hope readers will take away from it? Well, I hope first and foremost that Christians will have a better understanding of the way Islamophobia impacts Muslims, whether it's hate crimes or negative political rhetoric or more institutionalized forms of discrimination. I think having a sense of what our Muslim siblings and faith have experienced, this form of religious bigotry is really important. And then I hope that we will draw on our faith tradition to craft a response to this Islamophobia, that we will do work within our own Christian communities in the broader society to push back against this prejudice and discrimination that so often targets Muslims. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm trying to picture you speaking about your book at a typical Catholic parish. If there's such a thing as a typical one, <laughs> there's so, many, so much diversity in, in kinds of parishes. And I think you can tell the way a good speaker could that some people are really into what you're saying and they're leaning forward and they're just eating it up. And then there's other people maybe quite a few, maybe not, depending on the parish, you know, who are kind of leaning back away from you. It's like you're a lawyer making a case to a jury and you feel Mm -hmm. like you're going to, the jury's going to rule against your client. What's that like for you? Because this is a difficult topic to talk to people about. 
It is. And, and like you said, I, I've received a wide diversity of reactions from Catholics and from Christians more broadly. Some people very much taking in and, and agreeing with what I'm proposing. And then other people are more skeptical of it. And, you know, I get to, to an extent, I can understand where that skepticism comes from, because for many Catholics, they don't have personal experiences with Muslims as human beings. They've only been exposed to Muslims in the news media, often portrayed as violent or as terrorists, and, and they don't have a fully fleshed out view of who Muslims are as human beings. So I understand where that hesitation comes from. So one of the things that I hope to do in this work is to give people a firsthand look at who Muslims are, but also to help us really grapple with the stereotypes that we might be holding on to. And I, and I do that in part by talking about the way that I myself have had to grapple with stereotypes I've had about Muslims and how I've had to start to try to overcome those and recounting some kind of uncomfortable experiences of being confronted with those stereotypes and the continual work I think it takes for us to overcome those. The other thing I'll say related to that is I think Sometimes we in our Christian communities have this false sense of who we are and then of who Muslims are. So we we have this idealized view of ourselves and, and we we look at our ideals and our values and say, oh, this is how we are and aren't we so great kind of tooting our own horn and then not, and then maybe we look at Muslims and we only see the negative side of things. And so what I try to do in this book is to also shine a light on the ways that we as Christians have fallen short to help people recognize, you know, we're all of our faith communities are are struggling to, to live out our ideals the best that we can. And I think one of the ways that we as Christians can do this is by confronting some of the discrimination and the prejudice that we have towards Muslims in our faith community. You know, it's not an easy, uh, easy task to set out. As you know, I've written a bit on Christian-Muslim relations too, but I'm yes. a journalist and I go from topic to topic. It seems to me that you've made this your life's work, at least so far. And how did you arrive at that? How did you get started on this? Yes. Yeah, so this work in the field of Muslim Christian relations more broadly is something that I've been really devoted to since, since I, you know, started college really. And it's at Georgetown, right? At Georgetown. Yeah. I did my undergrad at Georgetown. I'm currently doing my doc doctoral work there as well. And a lot of it goes back to, to two kind of foundational experiences. One was the experience during undergrad of getting to know Muslims and having my faith life as a Catholic really enriched by... Can I stop you? Do you mean all the students you met on campus? Absolutely. Is there a large Muslim community at Georgetown, as, as I guess in many Catholic colleges? There is. Yeah. So there's a, a large contingent of Muslim students uh, at Georgetown. I mean, Georgetown has a pretty diverse student population, many students from lots of different parts of the world, but also a lot of American Muslims at Georgetown. And uh, I happened to make uh, a number of Muslim friends. I had Muslim chaplains and residents who were sort of faith leaders who would support students. And my experiences of dialogue with Muslims were really enriching to my Catholicism and helped me learn some of the similarities and, and differences. And when I came to college, I had grown up in a predominantly Catholic community. I'd gone to Catholic school my whole life and honestly was kind of disillusioned with Catholicism. And the experience of being exposed to something different helped me to appreciate what was good about my faith tradition. And the way I often talk about it is seeing the beauty in Islam helped me to recognize that again in Catholicism. So seeing the devotion to prayer and the community life and all those things made me think, I want those in my faith community too. And, and you dealt with that in your first book. Is that right? Absolutely. Your, yeah. Your previous book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the other sort of foundational experience that has fed into this career trajectory was 
recognizing the the prejudice and some of the misgivings that people in my Catholic faith community had about Muslims. And I talk in, in this book about a chain email that was passed around my Catholic parish community back in, I think it was like 2008. So it was quite a while ago. But basically all of these Catholic families in my parish community who were great, generous, wonderful people were forwarding around this anti-Muslim chain email message. And it really shook me up at the time because it really laid bare this sort of discrepancy between our values as Catholics and as Christians, and then the sort of animosity that people were feeling towards this other faith community. And I knew that the way that Muslims were being portrayed in that anti-Muslim email was not consonant with how Muslims actually are. And so much of what I've done since is to try to help our own Christian community to, to get to know Muslims and to forge a more positive and constructive relationship. You know, you, you said you were disillusioned. What about as a young woman in the Catholic faith, you know, did you become disillusioned to that? Mm -hmm. Growing up in my Catholic school, we were often presented with the, the message, which is very common, that our faith is necessary and important, and you've got to believe in Jesus, and that's the the only way to have the have a right relationship with God. And I wanted to know why. And even though I wasn't in a particularly religiously diverse community, I thought there's plenty of other people who don't live this way or who don't believe in this way. So what about them? What happens to them? The fact that they don't have Jesus, does that mean that they're damned, that they're not in right relationship with God? And I also, I think was so close to Catholicism that I was unable to see the beauty in it or what made it unique or what facets of it were really beautiful and enriching to a person's life. And so when I met Muslims, I saw people who had this really beautiful relationship with God and who had a sense of community with each other. They had a really, at least the Muslims that I knew at the time had a really regular practice of prayer. And I had pushed those things away thinking that I don't know if I want to be Catholic anymore. I don't know if I want to be in community with these people. But then I saw it in my Muslim friends and, and also realized that I didn't, my Christianity didn't hinge on believing that other people were damned. I learned about the second Vatican council and this idea that other people are included in the plan of God as well. And at least from the Catholic position on salvation, it's not so cut and dry. You know, we don't say that just because you're Christian doesn't mean that it doesn't mean you're automatically going to hell. These experiences with Muslims and then learning actually about my Catholicism in an academic way made me realize you can make a home here. And there are all these beautiful aspects of my tradition that I don't want to lose, whether it's, you know, these stories that I grew up with or the music or the, the liturgy, all of these things that I really came to fall in love with again because of the prompting of my Muslim friends and seeing what they had in their religious tradition and then going back to my own and, and, and discovering some of that anew there. And has that stayed with you? Absolutely. My friendships with Muslims continue to enrich my faith life and make me, one, think more critically about what I believe and how I practice, but also to, to have Muslims as companions on the spiritual journey is just really meaningful. One of the things th that I just appreciate so much is when my Muslim friends pray for me and ask me to pray for them. And there's this sort of recognition that despite our differences, despite differences in the way we profess to believe in God, even that we are both recognizing that our prayers are going to the same source. And there's this beautiful sense of 
spiritual solidarity that I feel when my Muslim friends pray for me and ask for my prayers too. And yeah, it's a, it's an ongoing journey and to have Muslims on that journey with me is, has been a real privilege. In your book, especially the earlier chapters, you document so many instances of anti-Muslim bias, it, it mm-hmm. including uh, a lot of violence. You must have researched very deeply because, I mean, I knew that this exists, but, but you really bring home how much there is of it and how intense it is. Can you summarize that for us, what you found by your, your research and how you went about it? Yeah. So a lot of the research from this book started out from research I was doing at the Bridge Initiative. So I spent a few years working at a Georgetown University-based research project on Islamophobia. And so much of my research on this topic goes back to, to my years working there, which was really during the height of the the 2016 election cycle, 2015, 2016, when we were seeing a lot of Islamophobic political rhetoric and also hate crimes that were also happening and rising sharply during that time. So yes, in the book, I document lots of cases of arson and vandalism at houses of worship. I talk about political rhetoric and government policies law enforcement actions that have been taken against Muslims, like infiltrating Muslim communities and spying on Muslim people and particularly young people in some cases. And yeah, all of these things taken together have a really profound impact on the community. I also talk about other government actions or or things that go on in society that we might not initially think about as Islamophobia, but are inextricable from the stereotypes that people hold about Muslims and policies that discriminate against them. So things like the U.S. wars abroad as a part of the war on terror after 9-11 and things like that. As you said, I cover a range of things in the book, and they're all interconnected. Let me uh, just do one question on Donald Trump. To what extent did he aggravate the problem? Or on the other hand, he certainly didn't invent it. In some ways, maybe his actions even help to alert the public to the existence of Islamophobia? I think all those things are true at the same time. I think that Donald Trump wouldn't have campaigned as hard on Islamophobia if it hadn't already been established as a winning strategy, if the public didn't already have these kinds of misgivings about Muslims. But I do think that he exacerbated it tremendously. I mean, when he called for a ban on Muslims entering the country back in December of 2015, no one had ever done anything like that before or advocated for such a blatantly anti-Muslim policy up until that point, even though lots of other people in the GOP had campaigned in an anti-Muslim way. I think it was during that period that people, particularly on the left, first started to realize that this Islamophobia thing really is a problem. I know for me, when I first started working at the Bridge Initiative, I would tell people, oh, I'm doing research on Islamophobia. And they would look at me and say, what is that? What is that kind of uh, jumble of words? But then during the 2016 election campaign, once Trump had really started this anti-Muslim scapegoating, people started to get clued in on, okay, this is a real problem. And there was so much hope, strangely, during that period, because even as you know, hate crimes were on the rise, the public for the first time, the non-Muslim public was starting to stand up and to stand in solidarity. And you saw so many beautiful expressions of that solidarity. I think we still have a long way to go, though. I think Islamophobia has fallen off of of the public's radar, even as hate crimes and, and other forms of discrimination are still ongoing. Thank you for listening to the Commonweal Podcast. If you like what you've been hearing, 
please spread the word and subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream podcasts. Thanks in advance for your support. You know, I should say in your book, you really let no one off the hook because you speak of uh, Islamophobia in a liberal American culture and in the, in the Obama administration and in the Democratic Party as well. Can you say something about that? Sure. So as many listeners may remember, President Obama himself was the target of some anti-Muslim smearing during his campaigns. I mean, a huge portion of the GOP thought that he was Muslim and didn't see that as an innocuous quality. At the same time, though, the Obama administration and Democrats and kind of more broadly have continued on with some of the war on terror policies that were started under President Bush and the Republicans before them. One policy that I talk about in the book is known as CVE or countering violent extremism, which sounds like a pretty innocuous like anti-terrorism program, but in many ways has targeted the Muslim community in the United States and Oftentimes, the things that are supposed to be red flags for this program that you're supposed to report people to law enforcement for are things like becoming more religious, praying more often, growing a beard, things like that. And this program basically asks community members to go to law enforcement before a crime has even been committed. And so it, 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 it's in many ways a violation of some of our basic rights and freedom of religion and these sorts of things. So that's one example. And then I'll also say that a lot of the stereotypes that are commonly held about Muslims are not things that only exist on the right. They're all, they also exist on the left. You talk about Bill Maher. Mm-hmm. Bill Maher is a great example because when I hear him talk about Muslims, he sounds like somebody on the far right, <laughs> despite the fact that he you know, identifies as very anti-Trump and is very critical of the far right. But he endorses things like religious profiling for Muslims and is very hawkish on foreign policy in the Middle East and makes just these sweeping generalizations about Muslims that are not true. Now, when I say you let no one off the hook, that that even includes yourself in the book. And you talk about Mm -hmm. that. You you did refer to that a little bit earlier. But can you tell us a little bit more about uh, your own self-examination? Because in in a book that's got a lot of research and scholarly information, you've also looked kind of deep in that Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the stereotypes that exist in the West about Muslims are things that we've absorbed for a long time. Our media is saturated with them and our sense of identity, even as people, quote unquote, living in the West is built on having this sense of who we are and who they, you know, Muslims or or people outside of the West are. I recount one experience in in this book and, and another experience in my previous book about the times when I've really been confronted with my own stereotypes about Muslims. One of those being when I lived in the Middle East, I lived for a time in the country of Jordan and um, not named for you, <laughs> not named for me. But I like to think sometimes that I'm named after it because I loved my it's experience. A great living place, it. Isn't it? It's a great place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is. It is. And when I so when I was living in the country of Jordan, I was sitting in my host family's house working on my Arabic homework. And outside the window, I heard someone in a man yelling in the street through a megaphone very quickly, emphatically, to me, sounded very angry. And my command of the local dial- that local dialect of Arabic wasn't very good at the time, so I couldn't really understand what he was saying through this garbled megaphone. 
And I immediately thought, oh, this person is agitating for some kind of violent revolution. This was during the the period of the Arab Spring back in 2012. And so my mind immediately goes to, oh, this guy is dangerous. This guy is promoting violence because it was just the my natural reaction to some man yelling in Arabic. And so I asked my host mother, I said, who is that guy and what's he yelling about? Thinking that she would confirm my my suspicions. And she said, oh, that's just a guy selling fruit and vegetables out of the back of his pickup truck. He's yelling <laughs> about bananas and tomatoes and the sale that's going on that day. I chuckle about it now, but it was one of those moments where I thought, oh, wow, why did my mind immediately go to that negative interpretation? Why did I immediately think that this was some violent political revolutionary? And it's because I've you know, my whole life, that's, that's the only context I've seen people yelling in Arabic on TV. And, you know, that's just one example that I often talk about, but there have been other moments too. And I, I share this, those kinds of stories because none of us are immune to these kinds of stereotypes. And when we think about anti-Black racism or other forms of prejudice, where we know that we don't always have control over the stereotypes or the biases or the reactions that we have. The most important thing we can do is to try to be aware of them and to un- unlearn them. And so that's why, I, you know, I share those stories because it's a process. I think like a lot of visitors to predominantly Muslim countries, you've seen a beauty in Islam and, and worship without intending to convert or anything, but just saw intense faith. And But yet, whenever you try to talk with that about that with other people, don't you run into a long list of, but what abouts? Right. And I think the biggest of these but what abouts is what about the uh, jihad ideology mm-hmm. that people who practice it say is rooted in Islamic mm-hmm. teaching and has a lot of us very frightened. How do you relate to that and talk about that with people? Yeah. So obviously, we're all very familiar with the kind of terrorism and, and violent actions that people who are Muslim and who claim the religion of Islam have undertaken in, in the West, in the Middle East, lots of violence that has occurred. I think the thing that's really important for people to to remember is that it's not it's not a mainstream view and that most the vast majority of Muslims find that to be totally in contradiction to how they would interpret Islam. My Muslim friends are really saddened when Christians like us would assume that they would agree with like ISIS because to them, it's a complete betrayal of what they believe Islam to be. Of course, people who are, you know, in ISIS think that they're living out Islam in an authentic way, but that's such a small, small minority of the tradition. And I find that when people have personal relationships with Muslims, a lot of these misgivings about jihad or sharia for example they fall away when you actually see how islam is actually lived and how the vast majority of muslim people understand their faith tradition so that's one of the important effects i think that personal relationships can have is that these narratives that we get from the media start to define our relationships to muslims less what really gives me a lot of hope is that there are more and more Muslims in newsrooms and working as filmmakers or in in Hollywood and things like that, because ultimately representation in those industries is going to mean that Muslims are, are portrayed in more realistic ways. Speaking of going over then to the news media, are there people you think are doing a particularly good job? Yes, I think there are people that do a great job. Again, there's a lot more Muslims who are like news presenters and things like that now. And I'm thinking of Amina Nawaz on PBS NewsHour as a Muslim woman who's front and center in, in the work that they do. 
Mehdi Hassan is, is British, but now is on American television. Ayman Moyaldeen, I think, is on NBC and MSNBC also. And also, I think social media is such a, an important platform now as well that there are so many voices on social media who might not get onto mainstream television news, but who are shaping the media narrative in, in important ways. How about Catholic media? You did a, a report on the subject yeah. several years ago. We looked very deeply and found some disconcerting things about it. Has that situation improved since you wrote that report? And there are places you will look to that you mm-hmm. think uh, are kind of ex- maybe explaining this in the ways that Catholics would relate to? Yes. To just speak a little bit about the report that you mentioned. So when I was working full-time at the Bridge Initiative, I worked on a report that examined both Catholics' attitudes towards Muslims and then also to uh, the portrayal of Islam and Muslims in Catholic media. And one of the things that really was disconcerting was to see that Catholics who more frequently consumed Catholic media tended to have more negative views of Muslims, which is not something that we that we want to see. And a lot of what I've been trying to do since then is to, to do more outreach to Catholic media organizations to hopefully shape coverage of Islam and Muslims for the better. And I, I've seen so much receptivity, not just from some of the, the larger national Catholic media outlets, but also from like diocesan newspapers. I have journalists who will reach out to me and say, oh, I'm thinking about covering this. What resources do you have on it? Or things like that. One uh, example that I'll just give of, I think, a positive trend is National Catholic Reporter is running, writing by Muslims more now than they were before. And I think that's really great because I think Catholics need to hear from Muslims directly. And it's not outside of the mission of Catholic publications to be running pieces by Muslims. So I think that's a really positive development. It seems like person-to-person contact is really your theme in a lot of ways, that, that it both personally and in how to overcome the the problem of Islamophobia among mm-hmm. Christians. Mm-hmm. It is. I think personal relationships are hugely important. And a lot of studies will show that the closer a personal relationship that you have with someone of another faith tradition, the less likely you are to buy into stereotypes about that group. And also in the case of Muslims, the less likely you are to, I think, advocate or support anti-Muslim like political policies. At the same time, though, I think it's important that we on the Christian side of things don't expect Muslims to devote their time to educating us and to coming into our churches and saying, please don't fear us (laughs) because, you know, Muslims are trying to go about their own lives and live their own lives. And, you know, many of them are quite willing and, and eager to dialogue with Christians and to talk about Islamophobia and their experiences. But I think I know a lot of Muslim friends who would feel really uncomfortable going into a church setting where there's people who are going to feel hostile towards them. And I don't want to put my Muslim friends in that situation. So that's why I think we as Christians have a responsibility to do that kind of hard work in our own communities and not to ask Muslims to do it, but to realize that we kind of have a, a faith-filled duty, I think, to address those issues first in our community. It seems, looking at it in terms of Catholic-Muslim relations, that there are a lot of breakthroughs at high levels among, from the Pope to the uh, Common Word Initiative mm-hmm. and really good things and different committees meeting of high-level experts, but doesn't quite really filter down that well, even to priests, for example, everyday priests and parishes. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you noticed that at all in 
Do you think there's a way to, to deal with, to respond to that? I have noticed a similar trend. I think Pope Francis is such a phenomenal example of what Catholic Muslim dialogue and friendship can look like. But I agree that the trickle down has not been great. And that's something that I want to focus on more is how can we better engage our clergy in in this work? Because, you know, as I talk about in the book, I've had a number of personal experiences and then also read a lot of reports of, of priests actively contributing to Islamophobia rather than to this more dialogical approach. So yeah, I think it's important to involve our clergy more. And and I would hope that more of them would take up the leadership in this way. At the same time, I, as a lay Catholic woman, am not going to wait around for them. (laughs) You know, like I, I don't think, I think lay people have a really important role to play and we can exert that kind of leadership, even if the clergy isn't doing it to the extent that we might like. Jordan, uh, it's really good to speak with you and, and thank you for informing us of a lot of things that need to be said. Thank you. Jordan Denari Duffner's new book is Islamophobia, What Christians Should Know and Do About Anti-Muslim Discrimination. It's available from Orbis Press. This is Dominic Preziosi for The Common Real Podcast. The Common Real Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek, and the Commonwealth staff, in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>